yeah, I'm happy to just crack on. Welcome to the show, Jake Ginevan. You are the creator of Featureboard, a SaaS app to help you manage your feature toggles. I am super interested to find out more. How are you? Yeah, really good. Uh, looking forward to chatting about Featureboard and just Jamstack in general. It's a pretty interesting area and I've spent a fair bit of the last couple of years solving a lot of the similar problems. When you say you've been in the industry for a few years in Jamstack, I feel like you'll probably have hit all the same pain points as me. Like Gatsby 2 is awesome. Gatsby is terrible. Next.js is awesome. Uh, it's still awesome. <laughs> I have been at a news organization, West Australian News, for the last couple of years, building their digital online platform. We started that about five years ago, and that was all server-side rendered using CDNs and a lot of the same approaches, and none of those things existed. So we built our own. <laughs> Jamstack is almost a, a force of nature. Whether you realize it's a thing or not, you kind of end up falling into it. I'm curious, like, what was the origin of you, like, trying out these techniques, like how you kind of found your way to them? I got started more in a .NET space building line of business applications. So the move across to a media company was quite a big jump. I think the problems you solve are quite different rather than having an application that is very interactive and, and no need for highly available distributed kind of CDNs or anything like that. A new site needs to be hit by a lot of people. It's mostly anonymous traffic. Uh, it needs to be fast. In the more recent time, like Core Web Vitals and that sort of stuff is making sure that these sort of approaches are becoming really important. But I think it was just a move into media that really forced me to learn about CDNs and how to offload as much of your traffic away from your origin servers to control costs and improve performance as you possibly can. One of the big things that I wonder, and I think you can definitely provide possibly a unique take for the podcast, is did you ever have to handle AMP in your Jamstack? Because if you worked at a news organization, I bet you did. We had to ship AMP and the way we kind of solved it was multiple render targets for our server-side render. So it could render all of the same components. And then as you kind of hit something that needed to be specific, like an image component for AMP, it would render the AMP version of that component. And that way we could kind of keep a lot of the same structure and, and things that were the same across web and AMP without having to kind of completely rebuild it. Once again, that's another thing that's a moving target because the ranking used to be you just wouldn't get your news content surfaced if you weren't on app, but um, that's changing a little bit. Mm -hmm. The news tab that was like, here's all the latest articles. What framework did you use while you was there? Because AMP is one of these really interesting ones where Gatsby half supports it, Next.js say they fully support it. And I've not really seen many companies actually adopt AMP unless they're enterprise, if you know what I mean, as like, the top of the the five percent yeah i guess it's probably worth taking a step back and explaining kind of what we did there's a project that we released called project watchtower i wouldn't recommend picking it up but it was kind of our version of next or i think probably the closest thing to our infrastructure was probably Remix about a year ago. Quite similar approaches to the direction that they were taking React Router and that sort of stuff, and then created some server-side rendering middleware for all of our 
React apps. The way we approached it is you just have an Express app and we can render the different routes on the server. We didn't have libraries like React Query and Next with all of its get static data props, so we built our own. Our initial implementations just did multiple render passes, so you could you do a render of the entire application, it would trigger all of the data loads, and then once all the data was loaded, it would re-render the application with all of the data, and then it could return that to the user. It's not very efficient, so we were looking for the similar sort of optimizations that a lot of the other frameworks do, where they walk the React tree and kind of pull things out, or top-level routing and data loading. What we settled on was building a library that allows us to define our page structure of our applications as JSON. And that kind of gave us the ability to introduce middleware against our React components. So we had a like data loading middleware. Because it was a JSON structure, we could walk it, find any components that were registered in that page that needed data loaded. And then we could load all of that data and provide it to the page before rendering. But because we built all of that, AMP was just pretty simple in terms of React, we just have a context which has your render target and then have a component that has three props, web, amp, then we have a couple of other ones like RSS, and then you just provide the the various implementations of that component. One of the big things I think of quite often is if you spend your whole life working in agencies or startups, you tend to forget that, you know, when you get to this really high end, say news organizations, and you think how they run, you know, most of them have either a bespoke CMS or use this obscure CMS that the biggest organizations in the world are using, but nobody else knows of. How do they all connect? You don't tend to use, you know, contentful, just off the shelf solutions that are very specific. And I think the biggest thing that I, I want to ask about this all is, so it was all server side rendered. So is that jam in your eyes? Ha, good question. This is up for debate at the moment, isn't it? There's a few bits to that. We'll tackle the CMS one for news orgs because you're 100% right. Places like the Washington Post are building their own CMSs for news organizations that have all of that stuff in it. Ours was coming from the print system. So we got zip files with a proprietary XML and that was the start of our ingestion pipeline. And then we'd decode that and end up storing it in the database. But getting to the Jamstack side of things, the thing about Jamstack is you, you're trying to leverage the CDN to serve content to users really, really quick. With server-side rendered, as long as you're caching and you have a the ability to cache the majority of requests, you get the same experience as static websites. What makes it really challenging is you've got a trade-off, especially with tools like Gatsby, around you have to rebuild all of the pages. And when I left recently, we'd got to the point that we were doing continuous deployment to production on new sites that had like millions of hits a day and the team could just merge a pull request and it went out and that was just happening a couple of times an hour. There's no way you could kind of get that when you've got a long tail of two and a half million news articles or something that most users and we're not going to serve a lot of that tail. It's very, very infrequent, but the highly available stuff like the homepage or news articles that have been shared on social media, they have heaps and heaps of hits in a very short amount of time. And so they immediately get cash from the CDN and our cash hit rate can be kind of like high 90s and gives you all of the same benefits that serving from static files in the CDN can give you. And and it's just all generated on demand and cached for the user. So yes, 
Well, we were talking, just kind of messaging back and forth. You had mentioned that you're using an 11D plugin. So at what point did you start utilizing 11D for this stuff? This flips over to what I've been doing with FeatureBoard. A new site is one side of it, and then you've got your marketing sites for your SaaS products. 11D, it's expensive to have servers. There's a heap of infrastructure. You've got to monitor it, that sort of thing. So if you don't need all of that infrastructure and server-side rendering, it's a heap of complexity you can get rid of. So for something like a marketing site, you absolutely don't want to be running all of that infrastructure. You'd want to be just generating everything statically at build time, takes next to no time, and deploying it and then serving it from the CDN. We were using, for FeatureBoard, 11 to generate the static website, and then it's just got a really configured so that's all served from the cdn so it's nice and quick let's get into feature board it's an area of hot topic and when i say hot topic i think it's one of these unique companies that you think i have a problem and i need a solution and you think it's just going to be a boolean you know it's just a boolean in the server how hard can it be and then you start digging and digging and it's like yeah this is going to be really hard it's a boolean to me But then if my business guy wants to, you know, swap some things around, how's he going to do it? And then you get all into this management and then, oh, you need to find the user, then toggle their toggles. And you don't want to give them database access because they could do some damage. So it's like, how do you do all these things? And I find the same thing with like webhooks, feature toggles even dark mode sometimes you think it's such an easy solution to just be like that's a line of code it's just a pit of how do you manage this properly to make sure only the right users are getting the right things your product is currently in early access so i would love to hear more about how do you fix that solution or have the golden path to that solution and how you expect to be different from potentially other ones. So basically, it's your feature pitch time. (laughs) Excellent. So to get started, I think feature toggles just in general are horribly underused. The number of times in my consulting background, you'd go in and there is a system that does role-based access security. So like admins can use this feature or even just like I have this third-party integration. We've got a bit of config that turns that on and off. Like there's so many ways to do feature toggling. And I think if you look at it, there are so many categories of patterns we see in our software that really, if you look at it, it is a feature toggle. It's just the thing that changes is where the thing you're switching on comes from. In terms of the the problem space and, and where I started down this path was once again, looking at media and trying to do some sort of A-B testing is quite challenging when you want to serve different things to different users and not impact your cash rate on your CDN horribly. Products like Netlify, they do A-B testing by your branch. So if you've got a static website, you kind of branch off and then you have your master or main and then you have your test branch and you can do a percentage traffic split between those two. That works really well. But if you want to use one of another product, it becomes really hard because the way it works is you configure, you want to do a percentage rollout. But how do you allocate 50% of traffic to each of the variants of the toggle? It's actually quite an interesting problem space. So the way pretty much all of the products out there solve it is you have the user ID and in the SDK, they will hash the user ID to give 
it a common distribution. So let's say we hash the user ID and now I've got a number between one and a hundred. That will give me a hundred buckets. And so the percentage split is if it's less than or equal to 50, goes into bucket A. If it's more, then it goes into bucket B. And so all of that's happening in the SDK. Try and put that into the context of Jamstack. And where do you put that logic? The only place you can kind of do that is in like Cloudflare workers or Lambda at Edge or something like that. And if those all have to be connected and making API calls to the feature toggling service, it becomes quite a delay on every request that's before your CDN. So you're kind of losing a lot of the value. That's kind of the background of the problem space is I kind of want to do A-B testing and feature toggling with the CDN in place. That's where me and my brother kind of took a, a fresh look. When we took a fresh look at the problem, the realization we came to is that the user being the thing you configure against is part of the problem. That impacts how we can leverage CDNs. The way Feature Board approaches it is rather than targeting users and having a rules engine, you define the kind of audience categories that you are interested in. So that could be roles, admin, writer, reader, support. For SaaS products, that could be your plan. So I've got a small plan, a medium plan, a large plan. If it's a media site, you might be interested in where the traffic comes from. Did it come from Facebook? Did it come from Google? Did it come from these various different sources? If you're an airline, there's another one, like your membership level. So they're kind of like the things that you're interested in. If you boil down your users to groups or categories of users that you're interested in, and those audiences become part of the cache key rather than the user itself, suddenly you have, you've got a feature toggling solution that works much, much better with the Jamstack style of things. This kind of gets into the perennial problem with the Jamstack, I think, which is just like user management itself. And it sounds like what you're saying is you are almost skipping over authentication itself and going straight to like permissions and authorization. Like you're not really concerned with who is this user so much as what category of user this is. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. So you've got your authentication, then you've got your authorization, and we separate those two things around this is who this person is, and this is what this person can do. Often in the auth world, you've got your access tokens or your ID tokens, which have those different parts of the user's whole view in them. The approach that I'm taking is I don't need to know who the person is. All I need to know is what are the broad categories. And the cool thing is if you go back to the auth solutions, you can extract claims out of a JWT in your CDN quite easily. So you can calculate which audiences the user is in based on the claims in their JWT, and then that can be included in the cache key. So you now don't need to dilute your cache key nearly as much as what you would need to if, say, the user was part of that cache key. It also means that your origin doesn't need to deal with all of the PII or complexity around that. It just allows you to scale a lot easier. So you don't need to actually store the user's data anywhere? You mean feature board? Yeah, because what, what you're saying is that you don't have to deal with PII. So the user's data is not actually being stored anywhere. It's just being matched to categorize them, but it's like throwing it out at the end of the day. 
Yeah, and all of the user, who that user is, stays in the customer's system. Featureboard doesn't have to worry about it. And so if you then want to do A-B testing, it's not something I've built into the product yet, but it's something that becomes quite easy because you can just hash the user ID in your Lambda at Edge, create your group or your segmentations, and then put that as part of the audience, like test group one, test group two, and then a feature can target values to an audience. I want you to be able to access this feature as a large plan user. You just configure that feature to target that particular audience with that value. And you can hopefully scale your system a lot more. Start using CDNs in not just marketing websites and that sort of stuff and start blurring the lines of what Jamstack is. I think when you're starting to get into application logic and stuff, that's probably blurring it a little bit more. It's not quite there, but still taking the same ideas and the same goals, I suppose, and applying it to a broader context. I actually have some big questions to ask you now. We've just defined that we're defining buckets, like, as you said, paid plan, airline miles, whatever. How do you put a user in a bucket is my first question. Is it a call that you do once or when you should change some buckets? If you're not defining the user, how do you know? And how does, say, Everfund find that user? How do we connect them two things together, if that makes sense? The basic approach is I don't, or your feature toggling system doesn't need to know about the user at all. Your application already knows who the user is and what plan they're on. The way I've solved it in FeatureBoard is I'm using Auth0 for my Auth. When the plan changes, I push that into the user metadata in Auth0 so it ends up in there claims. So I always know I can look at the user statically. I've got that token and I can see that these are the organizations they're a member of. This is the plan for each of them. And this is their role in each of those organizations. And then I can pass that through to feature board. Your application already, however you manage that sort of information, as long as it can access it, it can put it in there. Feature board currently is much more of a firewall tool, you could say, than a tool that would define the permissions and then read them to the firewall and then allow them through it. In terms of users, as you said about changing user plans, someone's still going to have to code that in when I think on another service, you would then tell that directly to the platform because the platform knows who the user is. So they have a context. Let's take the plans. The goal of it is to be able to hand away from the developers the responsibilities of managing the plans. Let's take a scenario where I've got the limit of the number of projects. The small one can have one project, medium is three, large is five, and then some particular enterprises are paying for more. The feature board, you configure the large plan and you target the individual features. So the max number of projects, you have the default value, which could be one, and then you add audience exceptions or targeting to that feature. So the medium plan has three. And so when I request, I use the SDK and say, what's the maximum number of projects that I can use? Feature board will just return you a number based on the audiences that you've given it. So it does allow the marketing team to control the plans, but it just removes the individual user targeting. 
targeting the attributes of the user instead. It seems like if we take the highest level, it's asking a different question. You could say that others will ask, is this user authenticated to do X? But what you're asking is, is this role authenticated to do X? At the end of the day, it's still a user. The end result is the same. A user has an X number of claims and then I can infer the roles and then I only give the roles to feature board and it gives me the values back. In my mind, another way to explain it is a lot of the existing projects, they conflate that mapping between what I care about the user and what value the user should be served. They conflate those two concerns together. All I've done is separated them apart. In the example of roles and permissions, you've got a claim in a lot of other products. I would just configure the fact that this claim serves this value. I've just separated apart. Your application logic has to have a look at its environment, build that set of audiences, and then feature board works on the audience. So I've just split two problems apart and focused on it individually. And that kind of opens up a bunch of like caching and other interesting scenarios that I think reduces the overhead for end users, like particularly salespeople and non-technical people. Feature toggling products just in general, I find developers love them, but they don't get used to their fullest abilities just because they have a lot of overhead. And the other side of it that I've decided to simplify is removing the ability to configure features per environment. A feature is available or not for an environment. You can't do any more configuration for an environment. And when you use the SDK, you get a value and you have to specify a fallback value. If a feature isn't available to that environment, it just returns the fallback value. So if that's roles and permissions, you probably are gonna say, do I have this permission? False is the fallback. And then if I've turned that off in prod, it will be off for all. If I turn it on, I'll actually get the configured audience targeting. It makes total sense to me. I would love to give it a go. I've been reading through the documentation myself. I currently notice you have three SDKs, currently JavaScript, Node, and React. I would love to know if you're going to be looking at supporting more in the near future. Yeah, I was curious also, like, what exactly is the context in which you would use the React one versus the Node one versus the JavaScript one? Would you use like React and Node together if you want to do a full stack one? Or would you just use one or the other? Like what are the different SDKs really for? It's a great question and I'd love to make it simpler, but essentially the Node one is for server. So if you're talking about Next.js application, you would want to initialize the node SDK. And the way it works is you initialize it, it connects to the feature board service and gets the set of toggles. There's a couple of ways it can update like via WebSockets or polling, or you can specify a few different approaches. It can also just update it in line for something like Lambda that can't have a background process. And then at the beginning of the request pipeline, you say SDK.request and give it the audience set. The audience set, that doesn't need to talk to feature board. It just does the calculations of for that audience set, here are the values in line, and it gives you a client SDK. So everything is TypeScript. So I've got a client SDK interface, and that allows you to get a feature value. Now that interface is the one that is on the client side SDK. So if you're doing server-side rendering and 
you can have the same code within your React or if you're kind of stepping out of React land into something else that's just using the SDK, not the React part of it, it's the same interface that runs on the client and the server. It's just kind of the way those two are bootstrapped that are different. And the React one just sits on top of the browser one, gives you hooks and a few nice things. I've currently been writing a JavaScript SDK for Everfund. It is such a gray area in the way how to do it properly. And also, don't forget, you need to write your SDK in just pure vanilla JavaScript. You know, no frameworks, vanilla JavaScript. If you need to bind a button, you're using the classic way. I start out with, I'll just make a JavaScript one. And then I did it. I integrated it into Vue, Svelte, and everything. I was like, this is easy. And then I got to React, and I was like, this is not easy. And that's when I had to abstract it into a component and a hook to make it easy for React. And I think that's half the thing that everybody says about the ecosystem is React is this whole different beast compared to Svelte and Vue, because Vue and Svelte, you can just use the JavaScript one, and it just works. But React abstracts everything into a virtual DOM, so it makes it so much harder to do them things. TypeScript is fully baked into FeatureBoard to what I've seen. The libraries are built in TypeScript. What's your opinion on TypeScript? Do you like it? Do you hate it? Or is it just a necessity? I'm all in on TypeScript. Actually, quite a couple of years ago, our team wrote the initial types for Glamorous, the CSS and JS library. And recently I rewrote the types for Glamorous 11 to drop the compile time. So it dropped our TypeScript compile time by about half with the release of uh, Motion 11. Yeah, all in it. The biggest problem at the moment is the ecosystem with ES build and all of these really fast tools that don't do type checking. So you've got to figure out where does the compiler fit in. Previously, you'd kind of use TS Loader and Webpack or something like that. So where I've kind of settled is your TypeScript compiler needs to be running in watch mode outside the rest of your tool chain. Don't have the TypeScript compiler anywhere near anything else. So it doesn't touch like your tests. It doesn't touch your linting. It doesn't touch your build and local dev experience. The two things kind of have a opposing force, I suppose, because all of these ESM style things like Vite, you request a file and it can do a single file transformation through its pipeline super, super quick. That doesn't work with type checking because you can change a file and break another one. That single file module that all of these really quick things and pipelines and paralyzing, that's really, really hard to do with a type checker. So that's why I kind of separate the two. I've got a blog post about how to do that. This has been something that's kept me away from TypeScript. Getting it configured and correct seems like more work than it's worth because you're getting safety, but at the same time, you're introducing fragility because of the tool chain. And the new breed of tools, they just know how to read TypeScript. They just essentially strip off all the type information and ignore it. I think that approach is going to be where we're moving. I suppose there's other things like Lamdragon, which look really cool, or Elements, some of the older episodes you talked about. Really, really cool approaches that are trying to solve the whole problem. But for the moment, it's just Make all of your this stuff that is kind of required for your fast dev cycle. Just don't use the TypeScript compiler and then have the TypeScript compiler running in watch mode in VS Code. And that's just surfacing the type check errors to your IDE. And it's kind of like best of both worlds. I just want to pull up something you said earlier that you're a type author. So you have committed to the unseen heroes of the TypeScript community, the people that wrote the type slash XYZ packages. 
I think it's a really interesting question. Should the author write their own types or should they just say, if the library is popular enough, someone else will write them for me and just add it to the types monorepo? Either is fine. If the author or the maintainer isn't all in on the TypeScript ecosystem, then it's super hard for them to review a pull request. So definitely typed is probably the better choice there because if I've contributed to that particular type package indefinitely typed and someone puts up a pull request, it'll automatically ping me to say, hey, go review this pull request. They've got all the infrastructure in place to kind of go, if you touched this file, you're on the hook to review it. Whereas once you commit it to the main repo, the maintainer's kind of responsible for that. So if they use TypeScript a lot, then sure, it's take on that responsibility. But I don't think it should be a requirement. It does bring its own challenges where things get out of sync. But as long as you're not changing your API surface area too much, it's probably okay. Isn't it also PNPM that automatically installs the typed file if there is one the only caveat with typed files is like you download a typescript project oh it's not got the imports okay now let's do typed the npm file oh it's not got it <laughs> you know what i mean and then you're you're figuring out okay now i need to put that in there but to be fair that's happening less and less as we're seeing wider adoption of typescript there is always an option out there yeah i think eventually all the libraries will just be written in typescript and it won't be a problem <laughs> I would love to get TypeScript enthusiasts versus just Rob Cameron. That would be my favorite episode because Rob Cameron is a very anti-TypeScript person. That would be entertaining. Yeah, he's fiercely anti-type, which makes sense because you know, he's a Ruby developer and there's no types in Ruby either. And then he'd be a testing evangelist as well, which I think we do particularly poorly in the JavaScript ecosystem. So we were the worst of both worlds. No tests and no type checking. At least now we've got one. Yeah, exactly. And by the next 10 years, we may have both of them and be a full typed, checked language and tested. But you know, there'll still be them people that are like, I just like it pure. None of that. Push it to production. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why things like Redwood and, and these other full stack Jamstack frameworks are great because they actually bring testing out of the box and you, you're set up and ready to go. It just reduces that barrier, especially when using tools like TypeScript previously. It was just, how do I get all of these things working together without just wanting to top myself? It's uh, pretty challenging. Redwood.js recently changed their tagline to the JavaScript framework for apps, isn't it? JavaScript app framework is what it is, the JS app framework. I put my cynical glasses and said, surely it should be the TS framework because it's all bro in TypeScript. Yeah, I didn't think that went down too well <laughs> in certain eyes. And we talk about TypeScript tools. I think one of the best tools that I've used for TypeScript is TSDX. It's one of them really odd tools that are out there for a very specific purpose. But man, that gets TypeScript right. Yeah, another one in that same vein I've used is TSUP. There's a few others that are coming out that depending on if you're ESBuild or Webpack or like depending on which like part of the ecosystem you happen to be on. But yeah, like they're all copying that TSDX approach of just being able to build a light a package and it gets all the targets right and you don't have to worry about the transition between common JS and ESM. Someone else has figured that out and I'm just publishing my thing. Oh yeah. It gets confusing really, really fast. As you and me know, because we both wrote a library for our companies. SDKs are hard, but hopefully it's getting easier. That's a story for another day. <laughs> Definitely. 
my last big question is where do you see the next six months? Because obviously this is an early product. You're currently in beta, if I'm right. Where do you see your next six months? What are you looking for? You know, are you looking for early customers? Are you looking for potential employees? I'd love to give you the space to tell people what you want. (laughs) At the moment, really looking for a few people that are interested in the space to become customers or try it. I'm really looking for feedback. It's quite a different approach to many of the other products out there based on pain points that I've had with many, many of the commercial products and just been looking for something that's a lot simpler. So worked on the UX and trying to simplify the problem space so it's a lot more accessible to everyone. Really anyone that's interested in giving this approach a go, more than happy to invite. I'm kind of looking for a dozen or so people to get on board from this point, again, to expand the feedback pool a little bit more than what I've had so far. Is there anything else you want to ask, Anthony? Yeah, we had just been kind of chatting about just your experience in this space. And you had said that the Lambda Lith had hit close to home when, when you heard us talking about that. So I'd be curious to hear about your experience building Lambda Lith and why you regret it. <laughs> Not at all, actually. The bit that I've struggled with with Lambda and, and serverless in general has been the developer experience. And there's a whole bunch of emulation and local tools to kind of emulate it. But then you get into production and it doesn't work the same. What I've settled on at the moment is using Fastify and then putting the Fastify applications in Lambda, really focusing on using new tools like Vite and ESBuild to build it all. And then I'm using Pulumi for my infrastructure as code. So defining everything and pushing all the Lambdas up with Pulumi. It is a lot more low level than what a lot of these products and frameworks are giving you. It's quite hard when you've built all of this stuff yourself to settle on a particular framework and and trade everything off and kind of lose control of those bits. Being able to just write my application, be able to start it locally, like start a normal web server on my laptop and be able to write it. And then also my tests can all go through, like Fastify has a library called Light My Fire that it uses that allows you to invoke the request chain and your tests. I've settled on that. It's a really nice experience because nearly everything local dev tests and also running in production, taking away some of the idiosyncrasies of Lambda, which you once you learn, there's kind of patterns that you follow. It actually gives you quite a nice middle ground. I find I've been down the road of trying to make each route its own Lambda, and it just becomes really hard to manage all your infrastructure and monitor it without tools that kind of aggregate all of that stuff together. Yeah, that's super interesting because that is essentially the opposite of what the conventional wisdom in serverless is, that you should not do that. You should be breaking it up into a bunch of routes. And so I'm curious if this is something you need to like wrap in a certain library. When I do this with like Express, there's like the serverless HTTP library that kind of wraps the whole thing. So is that something that you need with Fastify also, or is that already provided? How does that work? Yeah, Fastify has a Lambda adapter that maps the Lambda event into a Fastify request and sends it through the pipeline with no actual server. It's quite interesting, the trade-off. I think that in particular, AWS's 
stance is it's a really good idea to break things down. But in my mind, we've been having these things together. We've been putting our web servers in production for ages, and we're just moving that model. Where I do like to draw boundaries and split things off is when there's vastly different permissions required in AWS. If there is a part of the system that has to touch a lot more resources, I'll actually split that off into its own Lambda, and I can use my CDN to kind of like route to different parts or API gateway to say this Lambda handles this path, this Lambda handles this path, and then I can split my application up where it makes sense. Because for me, the conventional wisdom about breaking things up into Lambda is all about limiting your blast radius if something goes wrong. If you got a vulnerability in one of your routes, you don't want to give full access to everything. Like if part of your system is dealing with payments and the payment gateway and and like has auth zero management keys and stripe keys and all of that sort of stuff put that in another lambda because then the whole rest of your application can't compromise that but if your entire application just requires access to the database and that's it then i don't see the value in splitting it up unless there's some motivation like bundle size to get better cold start times or, or some reason. So it sounds like Fastify just is lean enough that you don't really get a huge penalty on the cold start is what it sounds like. It so depends on the other NPM libraries you install. You put a few different libraries in and then suddenly you've got a bundle that's a meg. As long as you're kind of lean and, and try and not bring in all of these libraries and if there is a section of your application that requires this super, super heavy node library, split that off just because you don't want your entire application to pay the price. That's super, super useful advice. My final thing I want to ask you is what did you think of Vercel's middleware, well, Vercel call it Vercel edges and Netlify background functions? Do you think this is the next stage of simplification for the Jamstack? As you already can do that yourself, as you said, but it's far much more DevOpsy. Not sure. I actually haven't touched either of those things. So yeah, I haven't used them. You'll have to ping me a link. The Vercel one was just announced like a couple days ago. So it's super duper new. It's Cloudflare Workers. It's an abstraction that Vercel is putting on top of Cloudflare Workers. So if you use Cloudflare Workers, it's basically the same thing. Yeah, most of mine's just been in Lambda. Staying in AWS land and and more recently, I've started looking more into Azure and Azure functions and, and that sort of stuff. But it's pretty early for me in that space. Yeah, what do you notice in terms of the differences between Azure functions and Lambda functions? Because I've dabbled in this as well with, with Redwood and it's funny, like they're, they're so similar, but not because they have like slight weird differences that make them incompatible. At the moment, I haven't got to that depth in Azure functions. It's a leaky abstraction. And as you hit the edges of the abstraction, you learn a little bit more. I remember when I was initializing like an S3 client inside the Lambda to do imagery sizing on the fly, like should have just probably used Cloudinary or something. It eventually just ran out of handles and then the Lambda was poisoned and it couldn't accept any more requests. So you have to stop that happening or, or detect it and just process exit. So the whole container gets recycled, stuff like that. You don't know until you, you start pushing down a particular road and then you, you kind of learn how that ecosystem works. Yeah, I haven't hit any of those idiosyncrasies that I can split off with Azure functions yet. It's just been dabbling. Well, it's always great to get to talk to people who are like deep in this stuff and building things. So we appreciate getting the perspective. You want to share your socials where people can get a hold of you, where they can learn more about Feature Board? 
I'm on Twitter, Jake Ginnivan, one word. GitHub as well. I've got quite a few projects on there. They're probably my predominant two. You can find me in some Slack and Discords, but not too many of them. It's mainly Twitter. Thank you for your time. Yeah, that'll be a wrap then. Cool. That was good fun. like to say whenever we get different time zones on Anthony's in America you Jake are in Australia and I'm in Britain so we're all three times right now day night and midday yeah it's pretty good I'm on the west coast of Australia and the weather's really good here but we're we can't leave we're um, pretty much all of our borders are closed so it's a bit of a conundrum everywhere in the world's opening up well it's your summer yep Australians are like, time to get the shorts on and the thongs, as everyone calls them there. Which are sandals, right? They are, yes. Sandals, yeah. Worth uh, pointing out. (laughs) Yeah, it's worth pointing out if you're not Australian. It sounds pretty weird if you're not Australian. But I hear every Australian calls them that. Yeah, it is. It's thongs. That's exactly what you call them. But it's plural, so that's clearly the differentiator.